Upstream with Jim and John, father and son conversations about discipleship and culture in the Pacific Northwest. I'm John. And I'm Jim. And welcome to episode 131. 131. I like the, is that a palindrome? Palindrome number? Same forward? I have no idea what you mean. Forwards and backwards is the same. Oh, that's a palindrome? Yeah. So I like those. It's more complicated with words, but. So mom is a palindrome. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And dad. But it's interesting you think of mom first. I love my mom. (laughs) Today we are talking about. A kind of part two to last week's conversation about the American church and the we, church in the West, the church in the West, we intentionally a good, a good avoided the American church because we thought that was a little harsh and maybe a little uh, too. What's the word too small minded? I think the, it is it is more it of is a Western a culture problem. thing yes, than it, it is. is an American. thing. Yeah. But uh, we had this small contention during the episode on whether or not church or, or the Christian Christians in America is the dominant culture or not. And what I realized the pushback was, is we're actually talking about two different cultures here. So the, the, what this episode is about is the grand Christian church in the West is, and this part is specific to America. Statistically, the majority of Americans say they are Christians still. Okay. So the point of contention here, and we'll tell you why this matters. You made a blanket statement. Well, Christians are the dominant culture in America. Yeah. To which I cried foul. And um, why does this matter? And this matters because in reality, when we talk about this uh, lifestyle of abiding in the vine of, of the Lord and spending time with Jesus and, and, and really intimate uh, personal stuff, committing yourself to the word, that lifestyle is currently and has always been the minority culture. Yes. And so what this is, is a distinction between the large, the statistically dominant Christian culture in the West and the actual, what Paul calls an act, he calls the way, what it, what following Jesus. Yes, and so we would say, I think we would agree that biblical Christianity is, in fact, a vast minority uh, around the world. Yeah. And there's and nowhere that that's a dominant culture. Exactly, and probably never in history. Yeah. yeah. And we're going to talk about why that matters. And um, I want to say that um, last week we were hard on the church in terms of, uh, you know, I mean, the opening line was the Western church is a corpse. Yeah. And so this is uh, incredibly sad to us, but it's also got seeds of hope in it. And uh, we think that for us to have hope, we need to embrace what is broke and then find our new place in what has always been the cultural place of the body of Christ, which is being a creative minority in the culture. Yeah. So that's where we're going to go in this whole episode. Uh, we're going to talk about the concept of majority culture, uh, the posture of that and the change in posture. If you go to minority culture and how that changes, how you and communicate, how, that, how we engage the world. Yeah. Yeah. And it actually gives us great guidance and wisdom on how to do that really well. I want to read a quote, John, if you don't mind, I was going to do this later in the episode, but uh, there's a book I read called Disappearing Church by a guy named Mark Sayer. He's a oh. pastor in Australia. He's also a historian, okay. and he's a cultural uh, commentator. Um, every time I hear the commentator, every time I hear the word commentator, I think of Walter Cronkite. <laughs> okay. um, do you know that name? Yeah, he's a news anchor. Yeah, and I don't know why there was a joke. You know, we haven't told a joke in a long time. 
there was a joke about uh, he he's 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 a rare tater, not a commentator. Oh, <laughs> wow. It was about a, a potato yeah. named Walter or something. That one's know. for free, folks. You get a free joke this time. <laughs> so, so every time I say the word commentator, I think of common tater. tater and rare tater. <laughs> get to the story. <laughs> oh, no, you're going to read a quote from from Cronkite. Oh, yeah. My, my quote is from Mark Sayer. <laughs> oh, gotcha. That's right. And uh, this is, uh, we believe, you and I, I think, agree that the Church is a corpse because it has lost its way biblically. It has sold out to techniques and principles of flesh. It's reliance on dominance and power and money, um, et cetera, et cetera. So one of his lines in the book says, we are not seekers. We are slaves. The churches that do not fade and disappear in the third culture of the West, which is the culture coming where the church does, in fact, disappear. Hmm. The churches that do not fade and disappear in the third culture of the West will be churches that preach, teach, and live out the truth that we are called to live as slaves of Christ, a church fragrance of selflessness in a culture of selfishness. Mm. And so this is what our contention is, that when we say the dominant culture is Christian, we mean the dominant culture is Christians who operate selfishly, mm-hmm. who operate in principles of the flesh, and who are not, in fact, biblical Christians. Yeah. That is the dominant culture. Yeah, it And is. it calls itself Christian. And that's the distinction between... That that's why when I said that you 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 I flinched you flinched because I'm uh, tired of my of my of my title of Christian being hijacked and it has it's gone for it's, sure it's been hijacked. Well, before we get any deeper into that, that was about twenty five percent of our conversation. It is uh, story time, not joke time. I'm guessing for, yeah, for you. I, I guess you know I I demonstrated poor joke skills with the commentator. Yeah, but, you forfeited your your joke privileges yeah, for the week. Um. So, yeah, so I thought I was I would talk about my um, my career as a motocross racer. <laughs> um, when I was uh, when I was twelve, we started riding dirt bikes. My dad, my brother, and I, mm-hmm. along with uh, family friends, and we rode trails and stuff. And I started to race motocross. I got really into it, and I had a lot of style, but I was terrified of pain. Okay, so uh, we went to these races in um, Mansfield, Texas. That was the town where they had Friday night races. And so my brother, my dad, myself. How, my, how far is this from where you lived? Oh, it was about an hour drive. Okay. <laughs> and so we would all go out there, and it was really fun. And, you know, three of us kids are racing in the races. Well, uh, I was racing a YZ80, Yamaha 80cc motorcycle. Little. Yeah. I was a kid. I was yeah. a little guy. And um, it was a four-lap race. And if you know much about motocross, it starts off with all these guys on a wide starting gate, mm-hmm. and it funnels to a very tight hairpin turn. That first turn is designed to thin out the crowd and kind establish, yeah, establish yeah. a train. And we get into that first turn. This is about my fourth week of racing. We get to that first turn, and every bike in the race crashes except me. How's that? How many kids are there? How's that possible? There are eight bikes in the race. Okay, that makes a little more sense. And everybody falls in that first turn except me. I am all alone in first place, and it's a four lap race, and I finished in dead last. <laughs> yeah, that. And so on the way home, this explains a lot about my competitive nature. Uh-huh. On the way home, my dad said, "Listen, I'm never coming back to watch you race again. I've asked uh, Joe and Frank, and they're going to bring you if you want to race. They'll bring you, but they're boys." But I'm not coming back. Wow. And at the time, because of the nature of my dad's relationship with me. You were like, yeah, of course. I said, yeah, I don't blame you. I suck. Yeah. 
but I did keep racing and he did eventually come back and the dads told me, man, you ride completely differently when your dad is in the stands. You ride better. Oh yeah. yeah. I would, I would get after it because dad cared about winning and losing. Yeah. Uh, so years later, now this is, this is therapy session. Now years later, <laughs> I come home my freshman year of college for, for our listeners. Weekend. He's laying on a couch right now. Yeah. And, uh, my mom says, let's go hit tennis balls. My mom had been playing tennis. So we go out and we hit tennis balls. And I am slamming these balls down her throat because <laughs> the only way, you know, the only way we were taught to play is to win and not right. to win, but to destroy. Right. You're not there to have fun. Yeah. And so it would never occur to me to just, you know, knock the ball back and forth with her. I, when I found an opening to take a kill shot, I took it. And she finally threw her racket at me from across the court, said, you know, screw you. I quit <laughs> and walked to the car and waited for me to pick up everything and meet her in the car. <laughs> and that's when I realized this isn't really a very good thing that I'm this competitive. Gotcha. Yeah. So there it is. I feel better. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> uh, and that story did involve your mother, which I imagine most therapy for most people does. So, <laughs> so I'm glad, I'm glad yeah, I can help. My dad was the villain in this because right. he, this drive to win. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a lot to be said there, but I'll leave that laying there. Cause I have, I have resolved so much of it. And I don't know. I think, in general, there's other stories of your dad where he's oh he's pretty great. My hero. He was yeah. my very best friend. So it's anyway. Yeah, I, it was also good that you can now look at this in kind of a a objective, yeah, less emotional. Hold reality. it up, look at it from different angles. Yeah, and, and uh, walk away with the best and spit out the bones. And eat, you're not competitive eat, eat, eat anymore. And no, I'm not competitive <laughs> at all. <laughs> I'm much better now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get back into this conversation, John. We were talking about uh, dominant culture. Yeah. And when we when you made this bonehead statement that Christian is the dominant culture, and I said, no, 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 you pointed out why <laughs> dominant <laughs> <laughs> you pointed out why dominant culture is an important conversation to have. Yeah. So, so let's talk about that. So when I was younger, uh, maybe like you know middle school. Uh, so this is late of the early 2000s. So, so probably 2008 or thereabouts, you know, middle schoolers, uh, say a lot of dumb things. I'll give a qu really quick movie recommendation. If you ever seen the movie cop car with Kevin Bacon, Oh, they have the most movie. accurate middle school writing of all time. Mm -hmm. those, are, those are some silly, silly kids. So, uh, anyway, at the time and through like through early high school, I'm kind of learning more things about how the world works. It struck me some of the seeming paradoxes of uh, how we can talk about race and how certain things you can say about white people, you cannot say about black people. And at the time I was thinking, I was like, well, that doesn't sound right. And that was until I, you know, I learned more about majority minority cultures. Right. So uh, in this example, and this is, this is, this can be a loaded conversation. So try not to, you know, if this, if this has already got steam coming out of your ears, just, just give me a second. Yeah. In this example, the minority Lighten culture, up, lady. <laughs> <laughs> the minority culture attacking the majority is is less um, offensive. Offensive because what are they going to do at the end of the day, right? It's still the majority culture, yeah. As opposed to the majority culture, you know, beaming down at this minority culture, there's way more hurt there. There's a lot more potential uh, ganging up. Mm -hmm. It's a different. It's a dimmit, a different uh, uh, reality. So. Uh, and it happens a lot, you know, a lot of Christians today in America will say, oh, we're, we're the most attacked faith because look at all these people. They don't talk about Muslims. They don't talk about Jews. They only attack Christians. And that is and, accurate with a lot of movies and stuff. They will 
they will make the Christian look like a narrow-minded idiot. And the Muslim will be kind of the more reasonable or, or, or emotional. Yeah. Or and so Christians would call foul on that. Yeah. And so, and obviously I think as our, our faith being, you know, and Jesus being the way to God, obviously there, I'm, I'm not disputing any of that or why that might get more, uh, uh, heat in some ways, but, uh, the reality there is majority minority cultures. The Christian faith is the majority Western cultures. If, when you think of organized religion in the Western planet, yeah. you think of Christianity. Yeah. So that is not, uh, we're just, we're just the face of it. So it's, it's not necessarily if, if we lived in, if the majority Western culture was Muslim, then they'd be getting more heat than Christians would probably. Except that you get killed if you do that. Well, yeah. So <laughs> that's, that's true. So this is when I, this is the, the dynamics at play when we talk about majority and minority. This is what, this is what got me thinking about what you can and can't do in majority and minorities. And then I started thinking about this distinction between the Christian minority culture. And when we talk about the actual, the way the, yeah. this discipleship. So let's thing. give one more example of this. So people, so we can get our arms around it. Sure. Dave Chappelle recently on Netflix, he's had what? Three Netflix specials. I think five and Not a lot. Um, and he's been in hot water almost every time, but now like people say he committed career suicide with this last one. Mm-hmm. And um, what he did is he went after, uh, transgender. He went after uh, homosexual cultures. He he just kind of went after them. And the reason that he survived so long, if he were a white comedian, a white male comedian, he would not have survived the first round. And because he would be punching down from the dominant culture. This is where we right. we started having this language of punching down, punching up, or punching across. And this is used a lot in the trans community. They they've accused Dave Chappelle, and again. Not necessarily endorsement of the stand-ups because they're very, very gratuitous. So, so if you are to turn that on, don't think, "Wow, Jim and John are into some yeah. some crazy stuff." Because frankly, I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's, I just know about the heat he's in. Yeah, he he says some some intense things, but the they accuse him of punching down. That's their their language, and he would say that because of his standing in the social ladder as as a black man, it's really punching across. Yeah. He he denies the punching down thing. So then you have to wonder, well, what is punching up? That's what he normally does when he when he criticizes white, white culture, yeah. the majority, you know, kind of the, the, the status quo. And so if we believe that the the way walking with Jesus, servant lifestyle, uh, you know, all these things, forfeiting power, a life trajectory going downwards instead of upwards. Right. If we believe that's the minority culture, then that changes how we view criticism of the majority Western Christian culture, then we're actually punching up at the majority Western Christian culture. Right. And why does this matter? This matters because I talked, I mentioned last week offhandedly that a lot of criticism of the church, I'd get defensive of, I'd get a little punchy. Because people would say Christians are all blank. Yeah. And uh, you'd go, wait, man, I'd go, not, me. not me. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, this is the same thing, except one of the reasons, because I started living more in this kind of lifestyle we're talking about, I really wish there was one kind of encompassing word for it. I hate uh, using vague language about it, but uh, I started to see more of that disparity. And naturally, I started to feel identified less with the, the thing the they're big, taking shots exactly, at. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. The very big, very political uh, Western church. So this to me is a useful conversation because it is a separation of identity. 
of, of saying that actually, even though still high 60, low 70% of Americans say they are Christians, we know they're not. We, yeah, that's not really what we're talking about. And this is important, too, because as we talk in the political world, um, now Christianity has been hijacked primarily by one political party mm-hmm. or by one presidential candidate, for example. And it's completely split by race, where black Christians are enti- have view this country entirely different than white Christians. Right. And so, um, so here's why this is significant to me, because many Christians feel like this is a Christian nation. It was founded by Christians. It was founded on Christian principles. And now that which we, uh, which our forefathers gave us is being taken from us. Mm-hmm. And now it is, um, it is politically criticized to be a Christian when in fact, I mean, our money says in God, we trust, and we had the 10 commandments in courthouses and we pray before sessions of Congress. And we, we have the president swear in on a Holy Bible mm-hmm. that this is a Christian country and that's the dominant culture. And now that the culture is making what we would call biblical Christianity into a small, tiny part of the culture that is criticized and condemned for its views on sexuality and other items. Um, we're crying foul about that because we've been the dominant culture and now it's being taken from us. Exactly. So you'll see, and, and even uh, I've heard a speaker recently talk about if we want to change the culture, we have to do this, this, and this. And in my head, I'm thinking, when have we ever been supposed to change culture? That's never yeah. at all. We're supposed to change people. We're supposed to talk to people and, and mm-hmm. engage with people. Yeah. So this this battle with public uh, anonymous forces of culture, that's not really our fight anyways. Right. And so that is kind of, it's not even, when we talk about this discourse of punching or punching down, we're not talking about changing the world or, or making our making the way the majority culture, because part of this is is the recognition that that is never going to happen until eternity. And you would say, well, shouldn't that be the goal? Shouldn't it be the goal that biblical Christianity would grow to such a state that it is the majority position? And absolutely. I guess. I mean, absolutely. We should try. I, but, but if you look at the history of the world, I had, I had another thought recently about just kind of the way creation works. So we have, you know, with the law of gravity, we have the laws of physics and, you would almost think the way Jesus talks about it, we have a law of poverty. The mm-hmm. poor you will always have with you. Mm-hmm. They're never going away. We can elevate the poverty floor, but that disparity is always going to be there. You think of uh, the law of death for life everywhere. Uh, fertilizer. Death, death for life. Death for life. Fertilizer and dead things in the grass makes things grow. Oh, okay. You eat dead animals and you grow. Jesus dies for us and we live. There's never life for free. It's always death for life. It's how everything works. So, so like kind of just laws for creation. So one of these I think is that broad is the way that leads to death and narrow is the way that leads to life and fewer those who find it. That seems to be a law of how creation works. And that is going to be the case. Um, even in times of great awakening in history, reformation, great awakening revivals, it still never became the dominant culture. Right. And when it did, when it did become the dominant culture, it was, uh, Forced politically when it was it was neutered it it was it was robbed of what made it powerful in the first right so that happened for the first time when Constantine declared that Christianity was the official language of the Roman Empire and it's like be a Christian or we'll kill you yeah oh look Christianity is the dominant culture everybody's profession to be Christians yeah victory we did (laughs) and so what we're what we're arguing is that's not the way to grow Christianity in fact Jesus changes the world 
with only 12 dudes, only 11 made the cut, and they are not impressive individuals. Yeah. And so he is not leveraging power. He's not leveraging money. He's not leveraging politics. He's not leveraging military. What does he do? He empties himself, takes on the form of a servant, and creates a movement of people who flourish as the minority culture. So later in that same Roman Empire, when they're being put on poles, rolled in tar and lit for evening torches, the Christians still remain there as a serving, loving, sacrificing minority culture. Yeah. And this is the way the kingdom goes. Yeah. And in fact, we see this with other, with, with, you know, quote unquote, non-spiritual movements, if there's a thing, or, or secular movements, like with uh, graffiti culture. Starts at, it starts in a lot of these kind of revolutionary or rebellion cultures, like punk. They start as, uh, uh, you know, kind of a fist to the man. They, they start as, mm-hmm. as low kind of minority cultures. <laughs> and then eventually you see, oh, man. Uh, Gucci released a purse with graffiti on it. The game over. It's it's done. That's you, the end of the movie. You've now been incorporated yeah. into the mainstream, and your your rebellion is now ineffective. Yeah. Oh man, somebody wore ripped jeans and a flannel on on the red carpet. The punk aesthetic is now incorporated. It's now over. It's now it's not effective anymore. Yeah. Uh, there was another one. Oh, the the Met Gala always cracks me up. People wearing forty thousand dresses that say "Eat the Rich." It's like, yeah, really <laughs> forty thousand wow. dollar dresses. Yeah, yeah. For, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I said forty thousand forty thousand dollar dresses. At that point. The rebellion doesn't work anymore. The the, yeah. the the subversion doesn't work anymore. Yeah. So I had a question here, where if we're th- if we're thinking about the churches as uh the you know the big American faith church as the dominant culture, and we're thinking of subversion, you know that that quote you read was about uh, uh the fragrance of of humility and of and of service, right? And how different that is. So if the if we recognize the larger Western Christian faith as very very similar to most of the other country, where in, in regards to self servingness, to power, to to pride, these kinds of things, mm-hmm. then I think I think of the element of surprise. I think a lot about surprise and kind of how it affects our reactions to things. A big part of comedy, so to go back to Dave Chappelle, is surprise. Are you surprised? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Right. So I think if someone's been in church or they've heard Christian language for their entire life just through osmosis in our country, you need something to make them look at it again. So is it possible to use to to communicate in the same channel as the big Western church, right, in these big gatherings in the same language? Is it possible to do that and still kind of shake people awake? You're, so I want to make sure I understand what you're asking. Because um, Christianity has been rocked by, um, you know, our divorce rates are actually a little bit higher now inside the church than outside. Really? By a percentage point. Um, We're not managing our money any better. If you come into our house, we will kill you. Um, You know, we're not, we're not, we're not definitively different than the world. Right. We just claim that we have been saved and we know the truth. Right. And um, we're not more sacrificial. We don't give more. In fact, uh, non-church people give more to charity than Christians give to churches. So there's no definitive distinctives about us anymore. We are just, uh, we're like everybody else. We just have this tag we put on ourselves that we're special. God has forgiven us. Yeah. And so what you're saying, I think, is can we begin to be a minority creative within that populace? Yeah, it's so if the the model for the past 
you know, uh, 60 years probably, probably since like Billy Graham, maybe even before that. But the model since then at least has been go out into your workforce, into your neighbors, into your, your, uh, your kids, school friends, parents, you know, go out into those people and invite them to church. Right. That was the model. Right. And if we are saying that the people, even if you disagree with, with us in this conversation, the country does not, the country views the church as, uh, not a place of life. Right. So if you, if the model was to get those people to church and that's not working anymore, then what do you do? How do you, how do you give off the fragrance of, Hey, I'm serious. I'm not talking about getting you to a building. I'm talking about changing your entire freaking life. Right. You know? Yeah. That's a great question. Uh, Andy Stanley wrote a book or did a series of teaching or something called irresistible. Mm. He traveled the country giving talks about this irresistible. There was something about Christianity in the new Testament day that cultures found irresistible. Mm -hmm. They feared them. They persecuted them, but they also found something irresistible about it. What is that? And why don't people find Christianity irresistible today? Well, part of it. Well, okay. Keep going. No, that's that's all I was going. I think it's again about that familiarity and not familiar or surprise and not surprise. Those people, there was nothing like the words of Jesus at all in creation at that time. You know, non a, a, a religion that is not tied to your race that doesn't exist at that point in time. You're right. And so and we do read about people who had already, who were Gentiles and already observed the law and, and were familiar with those customs and, and worshiped the God of, you know, of Abraham. But, uh, but this kind of, this was why it was such a hurdle for the Jews at the time when Paul said, actually the baptism of Jesus is for everybody, the light of, of the whole world. So I think part of that is just shaking the whole system with something no one's ever heard before. Mm-hmm. And our our battle now is everyone's heard this language already. Everybody. In, in our in, in the our, West. In the West. Yeah. Exactly. This is a Western conversation. So obviously missions in, in completely different cultures, this is that's kind of a, a whole nother conversation. But say you like you know a guy I mean a proverbial guy, I'm not I'm not referencing anyone we actually know, but you know somebody in the American South, been around churches his whole life. And he's just getting hammered every weekend. He doesn't know it was butt from all on the ground. How do you shake that guy awake when he's known this language forever? That's the whole, that's, that's for me, the, the battle. And he would even say, of course I'm a Christian. I'm an American. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. God bless America. Yeah. Baseball, apple pie, and Jesus, you know, this is who we are. Yeah. And so you're right. It is an inoculation from the true gospel. Mm -hmm. And what I, what I'm wrestling with, and I think you're, knocking on the door of is can reformation begin from inside the structure of this thing that is so badly broke? Yeah. Can, can there be, so you could, you'd say, well, right now you'd say there's all kinds of churches. There's churches that are worship churches. There's churches that are discipleship churches. There's churches that are evangelism centers. There's churches that are healing centers. They build their whole ministry around healing. There's all kinds of different churches. Yeah. And so maybe there's room for a, um, a biblical Christianity abiding in Jesus, um, minority creative culture. Maybe there is room for a church like that, but how does it differentiate itself from all other churches and how would anybody know to find their way there? Yeah. You've thrown this word around twice now, this, this phrase around a cre- um, creative minority. Yeah. Uh, could you let's let's do if you don't mind our quick show and tell commercial break and then i want you to unpack that for me and tell me what you're talking about there okay does that work yeah yeah that's great and then we can uh finish with some points about how we think we move forward absolutely all right so uh, we'll be right back 
Upstream is supported by the faithful members of the Upstream team, listeners who give monthly through Patreon. This podcast is just one part of the Jim and John ministry. They also write weekly blogs, have published their first book, and are currently at work on more. Their desire is to produce transformational content as well as offer encouragement and coaching to others. The dream is to see a movement of people who are integrating the work of Jesus into their daily lives and who are joining him on his mission to redeem and restore all things. Check out their website at jimandjohn.com where you can learn more about the father-son duo and gain access to all they have to offer. If you would like to join the Upstream team, consider partnering with Jim and John on patreon.com slash jimandjohn. A link is also available on the homepage of their website. And remember, there's no H in John. Now let's join Jim and John for the home stretch of today's conversation. Welcome back. Thank you for your support and for listening. We are truly grateful. John, you're up with a uh, show and tell today, and I think you're going to do another uh, musical artist? Another album, yeah. So uh, I know in our conversation about kind of another cultural conversation, actually that one was was different, but I brought up uh, Gary Davis, Blind Reverend Reverend Gary Davis, uh, blues guy. Big fan of the blues, huge fan. Of, and I know I've talked about it already, so I'll make it quick. But uh, this guy, I first saw him in one of our Lad family movies, which is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Directed <laughs> by uh, the Coen brothers, maybe just one of them, actually, I can't remember. Uh, anyway, it takes place in, I think, the 30s, Depression era in the, in the South. And uh, they meet this guy who's a blues artist, and he is a real-life blues artist. He actually had a oh, recording career before that. Yeah. yeah, and so he just shows up in this movie. And so I looked him up, because he sings a song in the movie, which is awesome. And so I, I found the song that and he recorded it in an album directly after the movie came out. Uh, the artist's name is Chris Thomas King, and uh, the album is called The Roots. Came out in two thousand three. Chris Thomas King, and in the movie they call him Tommy. Yeah, yeah, and he's actually ba- he's based off a, a legend of a real person. Uh, but maybe I'm mean, good coincidence that his middle name is, yeah. is uh, Thomas. That's uh, when they go in and they sing in the man's can for fifteen dollars. Yeah, give you give you five dollars, five dollars if you sing in his can. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they say, well, yeah, how many how many boys you boys are there? Uh, we got a uh, you know three singers and then our company our company a piano player. <laughs> 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 this song is the one they sing around the campfire at night. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, so anyway, it's all really really good. It's a little longer than nineteen songs. Um, and they do the, they run the whole gamut. Some of these he wrote himself. A lot of them are just really traditional blues songs. Uh, like the, a lot of them are from, uh, lead belly. I don't know if I talked about him or not, but a very, very important blues guy. So it's almost, he, this is kind of a hall of fame of traditional blues music in a contemporary. He's got a great voice, great guitar, really, really smooth. Um, it's a great album. It starts off strong first two back to back. So again, if you don't like those just bounce. I got your back. It's no big deal. It's 19 <laughs> songs. You don't have to listen to the whole thing. But if you do make it, I think it's rock solid all the way through. I love this album. Um, yes, that is The Roots, uh, produced in 2003 by Chris Thomas King. There you go. Yeah. All right. Creative minority, John. Creative minority is uh, a, a term I learned from Mark Sayer in the book Disappearing Church. Okay. And he is, by the way, about to release a sequel book called Reappearing Church. Ooh. And his uh, return con- of the Jedi. Yeah. His contention <laughs> of disappearing church is that we have depended on, we've become carnal Christians. We've become where our lives bear no resemblance to New Testament Christianity. We are consumers. We are powerful. We are wealthy. We seek the American dream, not the kingdom of God. 
we are seekers and not slaves. We do not, uh, we do not wrap our entire identity around the person of Jesus. We are not anchored in his love and rooted in him. We are not abiding in Christ. We are not following Philippians 2, 6 and 7, the pattern of Jesus, um, making ourselves nothing and not considering our equality with God a thing to be used to our own advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, we've lost this entire thing. And so the church is disappearing because it has lost uh, the true power of God. Yeah. And so in reappearing church, he, he is going to describe how to become this creative minority. So here's the, the, the powerful thing is um, you have minorities and this is really interesting. You could, you could say that Martin Luther King was in fact a demonstration of creative minority Hmm. because he was punching up, but he wasn't punching up with power, with money, with politics. He was punching up with love. Wow. And uh, what he was saying is, um, I've tried hatred. It doesn't work. Love is the only answer. Yeah. And of course he's human. He had flawed ways of doing that. He was a flawed man. Uh, but but the, this is the point is that the way a minority impacts the culture is to do so not with condemnation, not with fight, not with war, not with accumulating political power, not with uh, political action committees, not with advertising and marketing, but truly by being dif- differentiated people who live that differentiation out in ways that are serving, loving, kind and culturally completely different yeah and that when we assume that position we will no longer be offended when our country does things that are that like remove prayer from school yeah um because we recognize that most of the country don't even know who they're praying to <laughs> yeah so um you know i years ago that was a big big deal back in the early 80s maybe even late 70s yeah for sure prayer pulled out of school especially in texas where you still have football teams pray before the game and uh, at public high schools, you know, yeah. uh, so that was a big deal. That, and, and I remember somebody saying, I'm not frustrated that they pull prayer out of schools. I'm frustrated that they pull prayer out of church. You know, I go to church all the time. But we don't pray. We don't we don't spend time praying and Christians aren't praying. Yeah. So why are you mad that they pulled prayer out of school? Right. Because you're losing that cultural ground. Exactly. That power and, ground. Right. And so um, to to assume the position of the creative minority is to say we are the minority. Hmm. So how do we, with creativity, bring impact to the culture in which we are a minority? We can fight it. We can curse it. We can condemn it. We can try to amass political power or resources to overcome it. And none of those are the biblical answer. And when the church can re-accept its place as a minority culture and choose then to bring creativity, one of the things, I love this phrase, when people criticize, I will say, hey, criticize through creativity instead Hmm. of telling me what's wrong tell me what's better um that's great and so uh i can't stand criticism it really drives me crazy and so i've trained people who bring criticism to me well okay i get it but criticize through creativity tell me what the answer is show me a better way Right, because instead of the this, this, and this is wrong, and you go, well, then now what do we do? And they go, oh. I don't know. I just want you to know you're wrong. <laughs> and uh, church, Christians, as the minority culture, can say, we actually know a better way, mm. and we're going to live the better way. And the better way is to be rooted and established in Jesus, that my identity is not attached to my career, is not attached to my wealth, 
that I can give away, that I can be irrationally generous, that I can be incredibly kind, that I can pray for my enemies, that I can turn the other cheek, that I can pray for those who persecute me. This is the creative minority and it's irresistible. Yeah. That the word I've I've said it a few times, but the word that keeps coming to me in this conversation is subversion. So again, it's back to that Martin Luther King uh, uh, example, the, the Malcolm X way of doing things, at least when uh, for most of his, right. his, uh, um, what's what I'm looking for, where you're a blank, you're a, uh, uh, activist. Most of his activist life was fighting, in, taking on the man. Yeah. It, on their grounds, on their game. Yeah. Right. So we're going to play their game and try and beat them at it. Mm-hmm. And instead of that subversion. Yeah. And so for one, whether or not that is correct, it's definitely not wise like if you look at it as, as like an actual battle mm-hmm. that's not going to go very well mm-hmm. so even if you're just looking at it rhetorically uh, power of rhetoric power of actual manpower either way that's not looking good so the subversion of martin luther king rhetorically very powerful in practice very powerful because they can't beat you if you're playing a different sport right that's kind of the, the whole thing yeah they don't and, know what to do with you and in you know as history goes on you know we see more and more the error of of the violent way. And if you assess again, cause Martin Luther King did have uh, personal moral failings, but mm-hmm. if you look at his writing, if you look at his, his public discourse still, because it's, it's, it's what we learn about uh, the way we conduct ourselves in Christ is have live in such a way that no one can find something bad to say about you. Right. We look at his writings and what are you going to do? Say that, that like loving your brother to the end of your life is the wrong call. Right. If you like, I'm sure someone do, would say that. I know in fact, recently with, the uh, after the the uh, George Floyd summer, a lot of people were like, "Well, that Martin Luther King thing clearly didn't work." So really, right. we gotta get we gotta violent. power up. Yep. But that's just foolish. I mean, I you know, so so the subversion is really what I'm latching onto here. Where the where the power in that, mm-hmm. and that's when I that's when I'm now criticizing without creativity. I don't actually know how to in practice live that subversive way because that's how you surprise people. That's how that's how you someone would go. Oh, this is different. Yeah, where somebody breaks into your home, for example, and you subdue them, and you uh, tie them to the chair, and you feed them breakfast till the police arrive, <laughs> and you pray for them, and you tell them, "I'm so sorry that you're in this life. I, God has a better life for you. I want a better life for you." Um, you know, that's the what? Yeah, you're supposed to hate me. Yeah. Um. And so uh, it occurs to me, you know, we carefully chose the name Upstream for our podcast because this is the reality of being a Jesus follower. The cultural stream is going to always be going against you, Mm -hmm. and you have to learn to swim upstream. This is the only way to be a Christian in the world. Yeah. So uh, as a takeaway, this actually reminded me of uh, a psalm I was reading recently, uh, Psalm 37. And... uh, uh, I actually, this gave me a different takeaway, but, but, uh, it gave me two takeaways. One of them is slightly different. Psalm 37, Psalm of David. He says, uh, do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious, envious of those who do wrong for like grass, they will wither and like green plants, they'll soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good dwell in the land and enjoy safe pastures, delight in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Mm. And he goes on and on. But so part of this, part of the, the pitfall of the cultural power grab is I see them winning. They're they're this the culture is heading this way. We must stop it. And the way of God is that's not your fight. Don't worry about that. 
the Lord is sovereign over everything. That's and you have to trust that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you have to acknowledge part of it is, is prideful to say, I must change the culture. We must change the culture is, is prideful in a way. And instead to focus on, uh, what he says, commit your ways to the Lord, trust in him, you know, uh, trust in the Lord and dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. That again, that language dwelling, I would have to look at the original language, but it reminds me of the vine abiding. Yeah. yeah. So that's and what actually struck out to me otherwise was about uh, envy. I think a lot of we're, we're taught so much uh, moral structure that when we see people living however they want and not being punished for it, I think there's some envy. Yes. I think there's a lot of you going, well, I don't get to do those things. Right. So why should you get to do those things? Right. And so that's a huge thing. Dropping your envy for uh, uh, lifestyles that just lead to pain. You know, there's nothing to be envious of there. Uh, yeah. Anyway, th- that that was that's what came to mind for me at the end of this conversation. Yeah, I I love that because it comes down to um, I know the rest of the story. Exactly. These seventy years, eighty, ninety years I get on Earth, that's a fragrance. That's not. That's a vapor. That's not even the whole story. And so I trust the God who keeps score differently. I know that that uh, to prevail in Him, and really it comes down to that treasure in the field. Jesus says mm. the kingdom is like this. You find this treasure in a field, you sell everything you have to get that treasure. This is the call. And unless you know that treasure and you value that treasure, if you deepen your awareness of that treasure and your trust in that treasure and your trust in the treasure keeper, that's how you can become a creative minority because I'm not losing. Yeah. My heart breaks for the world that is losing. Uh, and we know that the overwhelming population, God would say of the creation, there is none who does good, no, not one. Yeah, absolutely. And all of us would confess, apart from Jesus, that's me. Yeah. So, of course, with the creative minority, because apart from a revelation of Jesus and a new birth into his kingdom, we are all profoundly broken. We will chase the wrong thing, believe in the wrong thing, put our hope in the wrong thing, yearn for the wrong thing and we will hurt anybody in our way to get the wrong thing so that is going to always be the dominant culture and the ultimate the reason that the entire faith is subversive again back to that word my my word of the day yeah i guess or of the week or month or whatever uh is that the the baptism of jesus you know the baptism of john baptism of jesus if the baptism of jesus is death to self it is not wrenching the flesh and trying to turn your ship that's stuck in an iceberg or whatever. It's that that is not what this is about. That's mm-hmm. playing. That is the fighting the the flesh battle. That's the Old Testament game. Exactly. Yeah. And and time I'm and time to try again, harder to obey the law. I'm just going to try harder. I'm just going to try harder. Right. And to me, this that's the same as and, and we brought up this metaphor last week, where the, when we say the church is a corpse, we mean it's living the flesh life. It's in it's in a life of death. Yeah. And so the subversion of that, the ultimate subversion of all of how you live your life is is death to the self that's the downward trajectory we talked about with now and if you didn't if you missed that one that was 129 i think mm-hmm. uh i would don't even listen to that go get the book uh uh in, what the, is name that? Of in the name of jesus by now anyway i think it's it's incredibly powerful and uh practically i'm still having a hard time l- grabbing on to next steps as far as what we would tell somebody well i think the next step in my mind is a accurate assessment of how uh, American-driven, power-driven, wealth-driven, comfort-driven, consumer-driven is your faith. Yeah, 
That's good. And uh, so step one is to assess that and then repent for whatever's there and then return to the biblical faith. It's interesting. I think we mentioned this before, but uh, people who engage the scriptures more than three times a week are having a dramatically different uh, experience with God than people who engage three or less times. Which is super interesting. You could still you could still miss a few days before times a week and have a, a very different life. A very different life. So I think the next steps to me would be to engage back into the scriptures, maybe start in the book of Acts and watch the church be born and watch what a Christian is. And uh, and then just start self-assessing and pursuing the Jesus of the of the of the New Testament and uh, full submission to him. I think my takeaway from this conversation, John, is the confusion around where does the church go from here and how can uh, local churches who are a community of believers, Mm -hmm. how can we pivot to toward not using uh, tools of the flesh anymore, not trying to impress, not trying to be relevant, not trying to wow, and instead be this creative minority, encourage one another uh, toward love and good deeds and encourage one another to walk in Christ and have real community of faith. How do we do that? And does that need the birth of new forms? Mm-hmm. Or can that take place in the form the church currently occupies in this country? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. It does. And that's, you know, we've been living out this whole, this Oikos thing for now. How long at Evergreen? Two years. Two years of, of an idea of ministry separate, not separate from about, the church. About 20 months. Not separate from the church, but an idea of ministry of personal ministry, of yeah. relational ministry. And we see time again in Acts as a great example. All of these uh, life changes, all these rebirths and, and powerful movements happen relationally. They're all in the context, a small group of relationships. Yeah. So in a way, if we equipped, equipping the saints is kind of, as again, one of those, one of those phrases, if you didn't, if you're not familiar, it's just, if the church is for disciples and not for newcomers, then maybe the model doesn't need to change. Maybe you just equip the disciples differently and then they go out and still do that relational thing. And then the people who they disciple what maybe they come to your church so you can equip them too, and which might result in a great falling away from your particular church. So mm-hmm. the consumers might say, I'm not liking what I'm consuming here anymore. I'm going to go find another brand. Sure. And that would be fine. Sure. I still do think that's probably the path. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, thanks for listening. We'd love your feedback. You can email us at info at Jim and com. No H in the John visit us on Instagram, uh, Jim and John. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. It's our favorite, favorite thing is to get emails. Uh, we have, uh, there's a few listeners who are really carrying the load. They, they email us often and we love it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we want to hear from everybody. So if you have something to say, if this really ruffled your feathers, we want to hear it. We want to get into it. Uh, and, uh, we just love hearing from you. Yep. So have a great day. Thanks for listening.